find your way to 2 Samuel 13? I want to make mention of a couple important things before we jump into the passage this morning. We're going to be in 2 Samuel 13 and 14 as we continue our journey through 1 and 2 Samuel. I just want to touch on two very important things, so I hope I can provide some clarity. First of all, one of the habits we have as a church, habits, disciplines, practices, is as we seek to know God through the truth of His Word, we typically do so by covering books of the Bible. We don't always. We will stop from time to time and even for seasons and look at particular topics or passages, but as a habit, we will work our way through entire books of the Bible, which we have been doing, uh, first and second Samuel. One of the reasons we do that is as we seek to know God through working the way, our way through the entire uh, Scripture, it helps develop in us a discipline to go ahead and jump into those passages we would otherwise skip. And this morning is indeed one of those passages, so now's the time to act like you need to go to the bathroom, I guess. I don't know. <laughs> Nonetheless, we think Christ is found on every page of Scripture, and we will seek to see that here this morning. But that being said, something very, very important. The passage this morning covers a very a dark and difficult time in the life of King David and his family. Uh, despite the fact that this event occurred uh, over 3,000 years ago, it occurred among real people, real event, real stuff, real pain, and real difficulty. It would not be surprising to me at the least. In fact, I would expect this to be the case, that as we work our way through this passage, for many of us today, this morning, it may in fact even bring back to our minds dark times in our lives, times of pain and difficulty that are unexplainable. So I want to give you an assurance as we worked through this passage here this morning, we will do so in a tasteful and respectful way. There is no reason to embellish an already challenging story, agreed? But also in your life, as God is stirring in you, if you need someone to talk to, we hope that you would take advantage of the folks in our women's ministry and contact Pat and say, you know, there's some stuff I need to talk about with somebody, and we will make sure that someone who is equipped and trained to work with you can do so. And so as, as we're working through this morning, I would pray that if God moves you in that way, you would feel the boldness to do that. But in light of that, if you don't mind, we're going to pray for you right now anyway. He said, we've already prayed three times today. We're going to pray again, so here we go. Will you join me as we pray for those who have hurts? Jesus, we come before you today and ask for your comfort. We're going to cover a passage today which has a significantly dark hour in it where significant injury and harm is caused from one person to another. And as we proceed through it, God, for many of us, it is going to bring back darkness from our own past. And so, God, we're asking for your presence today that you would add comfort and help and love and that we might find you sufficient. And God, would you move in us for those of us who need to uh, move and talk with somebody, give us the boldness to do so if you would move and that would be helpful for us. God, may you be faithful even in the midst of difficulty to encourage us by your spirit and show us the righteousness we have in Christ. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. We have to understand something about the Bible 
And that is the fact that the Bible is intending to reveal to us who God is and what he's up to. God is up to a number of really important things, but primarily he's up to redeeming us into the kingdom of God through the work of his son, Jesus Christ, which is pretty awesome. But what's really interesting about the Bible is God takes care to show us in the events of real life that he is redeeming people to himself in the middle of the mess of real life. God's promises and His covenant and His love and His affection and His faithfulness is all experienced in the mess of real life, in the, in the difficulty of the real stuff we face. Sometimes I think we get into our minds as Christians that uh, Christianity is all about escaping the real stuff of life into some flower garden that we stroll through until glory shows up. And then after five minutes as a Christian, you realize that's a farce. And you realize you're going to experience the love of Christ and the covenant of Christ in forgiveness in the real stuff of real life. And that's what we're going to see this morning in 2 Samuel 13 and 14 is God's true and faithful and present covenant of love and peace in the middle of the real brokenness and real tragedy. King David is king, and it was just a few short chapters ago, 2 Samuel 7, that God came to King David and said, do you remember? Your kingdom is going to endure forever. In fact, you will have a son who will sit on your throne, and his kingdom will never end. And King David, we know from, uh, we looked at this a couple of weeks ago, he understood that meant at some point in his life he would have a son who would not die, because the only way to have an eternal kingdom is to have an eternal king. And so David knew at some point in his life the Messiah would come and sit on his throne. And we said this last week, if you want King David to be the hero of 1 and 2 Samuel, what are you supposed to do? Stop reading at chapter 10. Don't read the rest of the book, because the rest of the book is a train wreck for King David. Because King David is not the hero of 1 and 2 Samuel. God is the hero of 1 and 2 Samuel, as he is, of the whole Bible. And here in 2 Samuel 13, we discover God's covenant is still true in David's life, but David's family experiences brokenness like many have not seen. David has several children. He has an oldest son named Amnon. Amnon is his oldest son, which would make Amnon heir to the throne of the kingdom, wouldn't he? The oldest son is usually the one who steps in and sits on the throne at the passing of his father. David has another son after Amnon, who is only mentioned once in the Scripture. Likely, he died at birth or very young. We read nothing else of him. David's third son is who? Absalom. He was a handsome devil. We're going to see that later. He had long, flowing hair, and there was one, not one fault on his entire person from the top of his head to the bottom of his feet. Not a single fault. He was... Stunning in his handsomeness. That's even a word. Absalom has a sister, the only daughter of King David that is mentioned by name in the Bible, and her name is Tamar. And Absalom and Tamar share a mother. They're a brother and sister, a son and daughter of King David, and their mother is a, the daughter of a king from the eastern side of the Jordan River. Amnon has a different mother than Absalom and Tamar. Absalom and Tamar have this in common. They're both very attractive to look at. 
We're going to discover as we look at uh, this passage of Scripture that Tamar is the one person in these two chapters, chapter 13 and chapter 14. Tamar is presented as one devoted to God. She is one devoted to the purposes of God and the purposes of His kingdom. Everybody in this passage is going to be presented in their brokenness and their faults. Absalom, Amnon, even King David. Tamar is not. She is presented as one who is devoted to God, devoted to her father, and in fact, even devoted to a husband she does not yet have. She presents herself as one who knows the law and seeks to glorify God by obeying the law. In fact, she is so devoted to the law, she does something in this passage that our modern Western ears finds offensive. And if you want to pretend you're not offended by it, I don't know where you get that. Just before her brother assaults her, she says, don't do this. Ask dad and he'll marry us. Because he, she knows it would be better for them to be married than for him to do this act. And then after he assaults her, and he is going to kick her out of his home, she says, no, that is worse yet. We should be together now. Can you imagine? I mean, to our ears, doesn't that sound bizarre? But as she is understanding in the midst of her brokenness to present herself as one who will seek to be devoted to God, she wears an ornate and beautiful robe that all the daughters of King David wore, and it was a special robe that indicated they were devoted to God both in their chastity as well as their worship and their love for their father, King David. Amnon, her older brother, who does not share a mother, at a certain point in his life, the Bible tells us in verse 1 of chapter 13, fell in love with Tamar. The author of Hebrews is, did I say Hebrews? I meant 2 Samuel 13. It is not indicating that Amnon has a loving, uh, uh, unconditional, uh, heartfelt devotion and affection for, towards Tamar. This is purely animalistic sexual desire. So let's not give Amnon any credit here. He deserves none. In fact, he was so obsessed with her that it was making him physically ill. His key advisor, Jonadab, acknowledged that. said, hey, Amnon, what's the deal? You look terrible. He says, oh, I, I love my sister. And he's using that in the worst possible way. And so Jonadab gives him some advice. Hey, Amnon, I've got an idea. Fake like you're sick. And tell King David when he comes to check on you to send Tamar to your home to make you a special dinner of bread. And Amnon does that. Sounds like a fantastic idea. He fakes like he's sick. King David comes to his home. And Amnon says, you know what would make me feel better, Dad? Is if you would send Tamar to my home to make dinner for me, a special dinner of bread. And David does. The first of many times in this story that David is going to be passive and disengaged from a situation he should have been well aware of. Amnon here is revealed to be driven by his appetites with no uh, heeding towards uh, what is right or wrong. He is merely driven by what he desires, and he's going to learn what we, all what we all learn when we are driven by our appetites, which is this. When we are driven by our appetites, we're never satisfied. When we're driven by our appetites, we're never satisfied. This has been true. If, you're, if you've been alive longer than 15 minutes, you realize this. You can eat a great meal. You're going to be hungry later that day. 
You can even go to the buffet. You're still going to get hungry later. Anybody at the end of a great meal said, oh, I'll never eat again. I'll never eat again. Did you? Yeah. Probably sooner than you expected. He is driven by his appetites, in foolishly believing he can be satisfied by just simply pursuing and achieving that which his heart desires. Tamar comes over wearing her special robe which indicates that she is both chaste and devoted to God and her father, the king. And she bakes the bread that would have been an oven, likely in an outdoor courtyard in his home, just off of the main residence, where she would have baked the bread over uh, either an open fire coal or a wood fire oven. After the bread is baked, he says this, she took the pan in, to serve him the bread, and what did this guy, Amnon, do? Verse 9 of 2 Samuel 13. He refused to eat. Amnon the toddler. I want milk. Here's your milk. Throws it across the room. Sends everybody out of his home. Tells her to bring the bread to him, and instead of grabbing the bread, grabs her. And the Bible says, because he was stronger than her, despite her numerous protestations and even an offer of marriage, nonetheless, he forcibly assaults Tamar. Just like he didn't want the bread after it was made, he no longer wanted his, effect, uh, uh, his sister after he had taken her. The Bible says, as much as he loved her before, after he had assaulted her, his heart what? It, do you see what it says? hated her because when we he pursues his appetites and he realizes a pursuit of his appetites can't actually satisfy his appetites it fills him with rage to realize what he had done did not satisfy him he clearly has no conviction or sadness over his evil deed his sister tries to convince him that throwing her out is even worse than the, the assault itself, but nonetheless, he throws her out. On the way out of his home, the Bible says she tears her ornate robe as a, an act of mourning and sadness, as well as a demonstration of she is now destitute and unmarriable. The Bible says she then throws ash onto her head, which likely was right out of that brick oven she walked by, grabbed the ash that had just been made through the baking of the bread, throws it onto her head and walks out with her hands on her head, wailing out loud. A completely appropriate and acceptable response. She is now destitute, and the righteousness and the chastity and her devotion has been ruined, not by her own disgrace, but actually by the disgrace of another. She tears her robe. She leaves alive, but destitute. We have to understand something, and we live in a very different time than then. This could be deadly for a woman, because now she can't marry. And now, in a matter of time, she may not be able to eat. There, there's no safety net in that time. Uh, this is why the Bible, as again, as hard it is, as it is for our Western ears, the law says if a man uh, takes a woman, that he must offer to house her at the very least. Because no one else can take her. No other man can take her. 
Amnon does no such thing. She runs into her brother Absalom. He does at least the minimum requirements of what a husband must do, and he says, you can stay in my home. So there is some comfort from Absalom. But before we give him too much credit, we must understand what Absalom is up to here. Who is going to inherit the throne when King David dies at this point? Amnon. Who will inherit if, if Amnon is dead? Absalom. So although Absalom shows love and charity to his sister, certainly to some degree from a heart of concern, mostly from a heart of an opportunity to get the throne. If Amnon is gone, Absalom is next in line. Not only that, but Absalom says to his, her sister, probably one of the most devastating things someone could say to his sister in a time like this, listen, don't take it to heart. Don't worry about it. You're fine. Listen, you've got a roof over your head. I'll make sure you're fed. Don't take it to heart. It's not a big deal. Just completely minimizes the devastating effects of this assault on her and merely is going to use her as a means toward gaining the throne at the same, same time. He does over some sense of comfort by providing her a home. David, it says, is very angry. David is very angry, the Bible tells us. David, when he heard of what happened, was enraged. So what did that drive him to do? Absolutely nothing. He pitched a big baby fit in his bedchamber and does nothing. Perhaps his hands are tied. What can he do to the heir apparent? If it becomes known that the heir to the kingdom of Israel uh, has assaulted his own sister, it could throw the whole kingdom into a turmoil. Perhaps it's best to handle this internally, and maybe it'll just go away. Tamar is assaulted by her brother Amnon, used by her brother Absalom, ignored by her father David. God's promises in the mess of real life, and we discover here what it looks like to have righteousness stolen Listen, sometimes in the mess of our life, we look at the things in our life that are all messed up and, and, and not right, and sometimes we can sort of connect the dots and make sense of them. We can say, well, I lost that job, but I was able to get a better job, and I didn't like that boss anyway. Or, or uh, we'll go through things and think, well, one thing led to another, and it worked out. And we can sort of, in our, in our effort, uh, we can try to make sense of things. We went through a hard time with an illness or, or finances, but the result was I, I was stronger in the Lord, and it was an important time of growth. And so we try to make sense of things, don't we? There are other times, though, that the mess is such is all that we can do is agree this makes no sense. There are some times we can make sense of what's going on in our life. There are other times, and this passage is one of them, where all we can do is agree, okay, that doesn't make any sense. In fact, it is almost trite and silly to try and make sense of something like this. The Bible doesn't try to make sense of it, but we have to understand this. If God's covenant is sure, if God's promises, promises are true, if His love and redemption is real, then nothing is ever senseless. Nothing is ever pointless. Nothing is ever a just merely happenstance. All things in God can be found to have an end point in Him. 
The Apostle Paul talked about this just a little bit on a little different topic, but at least a little bit, over in 2 Corinthians chapter 12. If you want to look it up, I'm in 2 Corinthians 12, beginning in verse 7. Paul had suffered significant suffering in his life, some of it physical, his own body breaking down, some of it a persecution, much of it a rejection, uh, even being rejected by close friends and partners in ministry. So he knew what it was to experience the mess of real life that can't be made sense of. This is what it says in 2 Corinthians 12, 7. Therefore, in order to keep me from becoming conceited, I was given a thorn in my flesh, a messenger of Satan to torment me. Three times I pleaded with the Lord to take it from me. He had something in his life that was so horrible, the only appropriate description of it was a messenger of Satan to torment me. Okay, this wasn't a toothache. This wasn't having trouble getting Channel 12 to come in on rabbit ears. I mean, that's close. This was, a, this was a suffering that the only appropriate description was, Satan is tormenting me. See, those are the kind of things you don't, you don't make sense of those. The only way for him to make sense of the suffering he was dealing with was like, Satan's all up in my business. There was no connecting the dots. It's making me stronger. It doesn't kill me. It makes me stronger. And that may be true. But that's not what was happening here. He's saying, if God weren't for me, I'd be dead because Satan is tormenting me. But look how he follows this up. Three times I pleaded with the Lord to take it from me, but he said to me, My grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly about my weakness, so that Christ's power may rest on me. Verse 10, That is why for Christ's sake I delight in weakness, in insults, in hardships, in persecutions, in difficulties, for when I am weak... I am what? Strong. Yeah, a little bit. I want to make sure you're still awake. I am? Okay, that's, that was stronger, so that's good. Okay, here's the thing. We've quoted this verse many times in our life, perhaps. You've said, made this quote. Uh, uh, Christ's grace is sufficient. My grace is sufficient for you. Jesus, uh, Paul is here saying, Christ's grace is sufficient for us. But we have to understand how he's using it here. Oftentimes, we quote that verse when we've done something naughty. It turned in a library book late and didn't pay the late fee, something really horrible. And we say, you know, but thank God His grace is sufficient, right? And that's appropriate. I think it's an appropriate application of the verse. But we have to understand, but that's not precisely what Paul is getting at here. Paul is talking about Christ's grace being sufficient for him when all kinds of outside stuff is messing with him. When people are sinning against him. Not when his sin is primarily against God. It's when Paul is experiencing in his own life what it looks like for other people to be sinning and actually harming him as a result. See, God's grace is sufficient not only for my sin against God. He's saying his grace is sufficient for me when I experience others sinning against me. God's grace is sufficient when I am sinned against. Has anyone ever sinned in your life and it harmed you significantly? There is grace for that. As we see 
a Tamar fleeing from Amnon's home with her robe torn, in Christ we say his grace is sufficient in that moment. That although it feels like righteousness has been stolen by the despicable act of another, the fact is his grace is sufficient. My righteousness cannot be stolen. We are pictured at the end of times as standing before the throne of God in white robes. You remember that in Revelation? We stand before the throne of God in white robes, and these white robes indicate the righteousness we wear as a result of Christ having made us righteousness. Those robes cannot be torn. You can't rip that robe. It's made out of mithril. I mean, I mean tell me you know what that is, right? Okay, that's two a Lord of the Rings references in two weeks, so we're on break on that for a while. I've got to move to another one. Go back to Narnia. It can't be rended. Tamar, uh, Tamar's robe had uh, the ash that had, she had thrown onto her head, had hit that robe and, and smudged it, and that ash is never going to come out, and her tears had fallen all over that robe, and it was never going to come out. Uh, the act of, of uh, Amnon was all over her, and she knew that she had rendered it, and she was not right, and the fact is, our robes can't be torn. Our righteousness is perfect in Christ. It cannot be ruined. No one can sin against us that our shame uh, would be what we clo are clothed with. Instead, we are clothed with the perfect righteousness of Christ. His grace is sufficient. I can't ruin my righteousness, and you can't ruin my righteousness. No one can ruin your rightness in Christ. Some of us in the room are saying, well, I don't understand. I, I don't understand the big deal. I mean, obviously, you're not going to feel bad about something, some, what somebody else does, right? I mean, you're not going to... That's not how this works, is it? Of course we do. Of course, everybody in the room is going to be trying to figure out what was wrong with Tamar. She should have known not to be there. She shouldn't have been wearing that robe. She should have covered herself more. Like anybody in those situations, shame is going to be heaped upon shame. And the fact is, her righteousness cannot be ruined by her brother. And our righteousness cannot be ruined by another. His grace is sufficient for us, for when we uh, commit sin against God and others, and His grace is sufficient for us that no one can foist shame upon us because our robe cannot be torn, our robe cannot be stained. I mean, praise God. No one can ruin the righteous, righteousness we have in Christ. God's promises are true and real even in the horrible and difficult and unexplainable things of real life. Now, Amnon's actions here created an impossible situation. And there's no way, once Amnon has done this horrible deed, there's no way to fix this. There's not an appropriate way to handle this. It creates an impossible situation. The only way to avoid a situation like this is for Amnon uh, to not do what he did. But it creates an impossible situation both for King David and everyone involved, including a Tamar. However... In spite of the fact that it's an impossible situation, King David and Absalom managed to make it even worse. Their responses were not only inadequate, their responses were irresponsible and, in fact, reprehensible. First of all, look at Absalom's response. 2 Samuel 13. Absalom wants to gain revenge on Amnon. We discover this in verse 
23, verse 22, I should say, Absalom never said a word to Amnon, either good or bad. He hated Amnon because he had disgraced his sister Tamar. He hated Amnon because he disgraced his sister Tamar. So Absalom here is going to plan his revenge. And in fact, this is a useless revenge. I would even suggest it is a convenient revenge for Absalom. Verse 23 of 2 Samuel 13. Do you see it there? Two years later. How many years? Two years later. So in the absence of any reaction from King David, because King David does absolutely nothing, certainly the primary reason would be is Amnon is heir to the throne, and he might expect that doing anything to his heir to the throne might cause problems for his kingdom. Absalom decides to step in and respond on behalf of his father or for his what appears to be weak father. We have to understand, as we've mentioned before, his motives are most likely at best mixed. There is some sense he wants justice for Tamar, but it also just happens to be that if in getting justice for Tamar, it results in him becoming king, well, you know, that's how that goes, right? Why not? That's just a side benefit, I would suggest, is probably his primary concern. So Absalom puts together what we might call the long con. You know what a long con is? It's we're going to con something out, of somebody, uh, something out of somebody, but you're going to take all the time in the world to do it. So for two years, he says nothing, because certainly Amnon is at high alert, isn't he? He knows Absalom would want to kill him, so Absalom just says nothing to him. Certainly Amnon is going around with his guard to ensure no one comes after him, specifically Absalom. So for two long years, Absalom bides its time, hides his anger deep inside his heart, and slowly over time, Amnon and King David come to the realization, I I guess Absalom's cool. Guess he just dealt with it. You know, that's better for everybody, really. Let's just sweep it under the rug, pretend it didn't happen, just get on with life. That's the greater good. So two years later, it's time to shear his sheep. Now, nowadays, we don't have parties when we do sheep shearing. I don't think we do. If you guys are doing sheep shearing parties, you're not inviting me um, because I haven't been to one. So he has a big, when you, when you have a sheep shearing time, it's a big party. Everybody comes out. They drink a lot. They eat a lot. It's a big party. Everybody dances, has a great time. I don't know why, but that's what they did because it was a, really, it was a sign of God's blessing And so Absalom comes to King David as a part of his long con. And he says, hey, King David, it's sheep shearing time. Dad, why don't you come on out for the party? We're going to shear sheep. We've got the best wine, the best food. It's going to be awesome. And David says, listen, Absalom, if I came out, my my guard's going to have to come. It's going to put you out. And Absalom's going, all right, fish on. If King David would have accepted his invitation, uh, Absalom certainly would have said, great, come on out. And the next time he would have tried again. Because what is he trying to get to happen here? He wants King David to reject his invitation, which King David does. He says, listen, no, it's too much of a hassle for you. I won't come. And so then Absalom says, then why don't you send Amnon out? Why would he ask for Amnon? Well, if the king can't come, the one who will be king should. There should be a royal representative at this massive party. Everybody's going to enjoy it. And David, now two years later, thinking Absalom is over it, says, Sure, send all the boys out. All of David's sons go out to sheep shearing at Absalom's sheep shearing site. 
It probably would have included King Solomon. He might have been maybe 9 to 12 years old at this time, not a, uh, nearly as old as Absalom, obviously. So Amnon is coming out along with all of the king's sons to a sheep shear party. Absalom tells his servants, as soon as uh, Amnon is good and liquored up, kill him. And they got a little bit worried. They were a little bit nervous. And, and, and Absalom says to them, don't. Uh, courage. Gird your loins. We're gonna get, you need to get this done. So the party gets going. And sure enough, as soon as Amnon has had plenty to drink, Absalom's servants kill him. And all the sons of David flee. He gets revenge and just coincidentally also gains the birthright to the throne. All of King David's sons flee, making their way back to Jerusalem. Absalom flees to his grandfather's kingdom east of the Jordan River. He gets his revenge on Amnon. He gains the birthright to sit on King David's throne. What does Tamar need here? She needs justice. She needs a wrong righted. This vengeance does nothing for the one who has been sinned against. This vengeance only fits in to Absalom's agenda for power, Absalom's efforts to satisfy his own rage, not in an effort to right a wrong. Tamar needs her shame removed, not another dead body. Tamar needs a savior with no agenda, unlike her brother Absalom, who is a savior with an agenda of his own. Tamar needs a savior with power and will to act, unlike her father David, who seems to have no will or power to act. David, in fact, now has failed twice. He failed on the first count to intercede and prevent the assault from happening, and now he's failed on the second account to prevent a miscarriage of justice. Justice has not been served, just Absalom's shallow attempts to cover up his desire to sit on King David's throne. And if you think I'm making that up, the next chapter, chapter 15, is when there's the coup and King David has to flee for his life because Absalom takes over the kingdom. Look with me over at Revelation 21, if you don't mind. Revelation 21, verse 4. Actually, I'm going to start reading from verse 1 of Revelation 21 and read through verse 4. The Apostle John testifying to the vision he was having, Revelation 21, verse 1. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. The first heaven and first earth had passed away. There was no longer any sea. I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride, beautifully dressed for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Look, God's dwelling place is now among the people, and he will dwell with them. They will be his people, and God himself will be with them and be their God. Verse 4, he will wipe away every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain, for the old order of things has passed away. He will wipe away every tear from their eye. And I want us to understand, this is bigger than him just saying, everything's okay now. 
This is more than uh, Christ simply coming up to us and said, you've gone through a hard bout, now it's all going to be good from here on out. Everything is made new. So everything that was senseless beforehand has its finish in Christ in glory. So it's not merely that suffering is over. Jesus is going to take everything that was wrong and he will make it right. There's a difference between suffering ending and suffering being made right. My question is to you, is there things in your life that you say, that was not right, that should not have happened, I should receive justice for that? Of course you have, you're human. Heaven is not heaven if we get there and it's just a matter of trying to forget the bad stuff. Heaven is heaven because when we get there, Everything will be completed and everything will be made right. Not useless revenge like Absalom who merely got his revenge and justice that he might sit on the throne. I mean, don't we do that with Christ? Well, yeah, he's only offering me comfort so that he can be glorified in his kingdom. What he's saying here in the new heaven and new earth is everything that was wrong and every injustice we experienced, he will provide all the justice for it and it will all be made whole. It's very simple when somebody steals money from you. Somebody, say somebody steals 100 bucks from you. How do they make that right? Give you 100 bucks back, right? That's, see, that's not very complicated. Give you $100 back. And if you're smart, you're going to charge them interest in inflation. Keep that in mind, okay? Let's make it, if we're going to make it right, make it real right. That's harder to do when you've been injured, such as Tamar, isn't it? How do you make that right? How do you make uh, the right, the injustices we've experienced? Not the theft of our property, but the theft of our, uh, our chastity, the theft of our devotion, the wounds that we carry. The devotion we would have for God, uh, except for the fact that we carry this pain with us from, uh, caused by somebody else, and it makes it really hard to be devoted to God. Don't you ever wonder sometimes, you say, God, it would be so easy to be devoted to you if this hadn't happened. How could, how could it be made right that that could be like it hadn't happened? God, in the end of times, when we are in glory, isn't going to merely make those things pass from memory. He is going to make them whole. He's not going to merely make us so that we don't cry anymore. He's going to make it so that what made us once cry, Nell no longer does because he has made it whole again. Everything is renewed, including our souls and our bodies and our minds. We're going to look at our history and say everything has been made right. There will be, not be one moment in our life where something was taken from us that Jesus does not step in and make it whole and then some. The hope of heaven is not merely meadows and clean water. To be honest, that sounds terribly dull. It sounds like fun for an hour, assuming there's a football. The glory of heaven is everything made whole. The glory of heaven is everything made right. There's not one moment in our life where we will not look at our life and say, Jesus had his justice done. Jesus made himself glorified in that moment by making it whole in this moment. None of our suffering will, waste, will be wasted. None of our tears will be forgotten. And nothing will be left undone. Everything will be redone. We will have a Savior with no agenda, a Savior with the power and the will to make all things right. I don't know how he does it. Because I'm not Jesus. And you're like, yeah, thanks for clarifying that up. He will make all things right. He will have 
true justice in our lives, everything will be made whole. So if that's the case, what do we do in this mess? I mean, we're still kind of stuck here for for the time being, are we not? Let's look at a couple of things. 2 Samuel 14, 1 through 24, broken reconciliation. So Absalom is in his grandfather's kingdom uh, east of the Jordan River for three years. So the timeline here from from Tamar's assault, two years go by until Absalom is able to uh, seek his revenge on his uh, half-brother Amnon. Then he flees to his grandfather's kingdom east of the Jordan River, and he's there for three years, ticked out, don't come back, persona non grata, you don't get the throne. At this point, he is not going to inherit the throne because he is not in David's kingdom or David's family. Joab thinks this is a problem, so he's going to seek to reconcile David and his son Absalom. If you don't remember, Joab is David's chief advisor and general. So Joab comes up with this very long and drawn-out situation where he sends this old woman into David's presence to ask for justice, very similar to the way Nathan the prophet told a long story to show that David, he was sinful. And at the end of this time, David comes to the realization that he does, in fact, need to have Absalom restored and reconciled to his kingdom. Why is David having such a hard time, perhaps, reconciling Absalom to himself? Between his son Amnon and his son Absalom, what do we have? Someone who has committed a sexual violent sin and one who has committed a a murderous sin. Any history from David on those kinds of things? Two chapters earlier, he takes Bathsheba and commits a sexual sin, and then kills her husband. You think in David there is any concern over whether or not he has standing to intervene in this situation? He is not one who is able to stand up and say, well, I've never done that, guys, so cool your jets. He can't say that. In fact, he has to stand there as one convicted of both sexual sin as well as violent sin, and as a result of his own shame... He's weak. He can't do anything about it. He is not able to bring the reconciliation, maybe, that is needed, or the justice that is needed. David, in this moment, is powerless, and he does essentially nothing until his hand is forced by Joab. And so what David does is say, listen, okay, Absalom can come home, but he can't see me. He cannot be in my presence. He cannot talk to me. He cannot be in the palace. He can stay in his own home. David says he can come here, he can uh, be reconciled to the degree that he can live in Jerusalem, but he is not to see me or talk to me. David's own sin and shame prevents him from being able to, in a a helpful way, restore the situation to what uh, could be. Another passage I want to have you look at, if you want to, you can turn there or just listen to me as I read it, is Hebrews 4.14. I'm going to read Hebrews 4.14 to the end of Hebrews 4. Just a couple of verses. Therefore, since we have a great high priest who has ascended into heaven, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold firmly to the faith we profess. 
Okay, we have a high priest in heaven. His name is Jesus. So let's hold firmly to the faith we profess. Verse 15. We do not have a high priest who is unable to empathize with our weakness, but we have one who has been tempted in every way, just as we are, yet he did not sin. Therefore, let us approach God's throne of grace with confidence, so we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need. What kind of need? A need to overcome sin. So whereas Christ is a priest who has experienced every kind of temptation known to man, and yet he did not sin, David here is acting as a priest who has sinned and unable to provide any sense of reconciliation for Absalom. How can he operate as a reconciler to Absalom the murderer if he himself is a murderer? Christ, though, can reconcile for us as uh, adulterers and haters and murderers and greedy sons of guns because he isn't. Something even more important about Christ is he knows the full weight of temptation. What do I mean by that? I don't know where you hit the eject button on temptation and you decide just to cave in, but you have a certain amount of strength in you, right? So something is tempting to you. You're at the drive-thru. You could just order a cheeseburger. But what are they going to do with all that bacon? And you know what? You better have a double. I mean, may as well. Throw some mayo on it. You know what? You know what? Just deep fry it. Just deep fry the whole thing. Right? So I don't know what at one point, at what point in whatever, whatever your besetting sin is, the one that you can't seem to shake, where you're going to, I'm not going to do it, I'm not going to do it, I, okay, I'm going to do it. Okay, so there's a, there, that, that's difficult. Resisting temptation, especially in our own strength, is real pain. I mean, it's not easy. If it were easy, nobody would sin. Okay, but we have no idea what it's like to never cave in. This is what's funny, is we say, well, Jesus was tempted just like us. Well, only to the degree that it was worse for him because he never caved in. He never once ejected. So there's a whole bunch of temptation that you and I have never seen because we cave in before we get there. So whereas David doesn't even know what it's like to take temptation to the full, to the full end, Jesus himself knows what it's like to go all the way to the end and say, no, thanks. And you say, well, but he's God, so it wasn't that hard. Then how come at the end of the 40 days in the wilderness, angels had to come and minister to him? Okay, God in the flesh, resisting temptation is so hard, it requires angels to help him at the end of it. So is resisting temptation difficult? Yes. And Jesus took it to the full boat, committed no sin, and so therefore is able to stand in front of the Father and reconcile us because he knows the, the appetites of our heart and he never caved. And he can be reconciliation with no shame. See, David is an inadequate reconciler because he knows his own shame. He knows his own evil, his own sin, despite the fact he understands that, Christ, that God has forgiven him. It doesn't take away the shame that still haunts him. After David murdered Uriah, after having slept with Uriah's wife, and the jury is still out as to whether or not Bathsheba was truly consenting, David utters these famous words, I have sinned against the Lord. And what does God say? All your sin is wiped out. But David says to Absalom, who is also seeking reconciliation, your sin is not wiped out. Go to your own house. 
suffer your own shame. You can't see my face. You are my son, but Mephibosheth has better standing than you do. Remember, who's Mephibosheth? The son of Jonathan, the grandson of King Saul, whom David has brought to live in his palace. And Absalom is told, Mephibosheth is better than you in my house. David is not like God in his forgiveness and reconciliation. God is more gracious and uh, more understanding. The problem is many of us think that God is like David. One author put it this way. He said, the Bible tells me that God loves me, and I get it. I know. God loves me, but I know for certain he doesn't like me that much. He wouldn't forgive me if he hadn't promised to. If he, if he didn't, wasn't stuck with his own promises, he certainly wouldn't spend any time being concerned about me. He just stuck with me. That's how King David reconciles. Our high priest is wholly other. Your sins are forgiven. Your shame is wiped out. Come and be reconciled and sit again at my table. David's reconciliation was broken and flawed, and we serve a high priest who does reconciliation perfectly. He knows precisely what our sin has cost. He knows precisely what it has caused, and he has decided to simply reconcile us by his own blood. So Absalom is living at his home, and if David is having trouble reconciling with Absalom, he's also having trouble receiving Absalom's repentance. So for several years, Absalom's living in his home, seeking audience with the king, and the king was ignoring him. He has no interest in Absalom, who has killed his own son. David is resisting Absalom's repentance. We discover in uh, 2 Corinthians 14 that Absalom is indeed handsome. What is the chief qualification for a king in Israel? To be a handsome devil? Which Absalom was? He was a haughty mctaddy, as they say. He had a lot of hair, and he would cut it once a year, and it would weigh quite a bit. I don't know what that means, but apparently back then that was awesome. The king wouldn't listen to him. Joab wouldn't listen to him. So Absalom says, you know, Joab's got a barley field right next to my uh, house. So to get Joab's attention, hey, guys, why don't you go out and torch his field? That'll get his attention. So he sends his guys out, and they torch Joab's barley field. And at that time, that could have been devastating financially for somebody. Barley was very expensive. So Joab, of course, shows up at Absalom's house and says, what's the deal, man? And, and Absalom says to Joab, take me to my father, and if I am guilty of anything, let him kill me in his presence. But this is ridiculous. And Joab agrees. Absalom is taken before the king. And the king offers peace, a kiss on the cheek. And he is restored although begrudgingly. Absalom wants to repent because he knows in order to ever sit on King David's throne, he's going to have to be back in King David's good graces. King David offers reconciliation only because it's forced. He knows the kingdom loves Absalom because, of he, because he is so handsome, and he knows if he keeps him at arm's length, at some time there will be a rebellion. Absalom repents to gain David's good graces. David reconciles to prevent a rebellion. Every now and then you might do something that you regret and you know God knows about it. Every now and then, I just mean by that weekdays and weekends. 
Do you ever come to God in repentance? Well, I would hope you do. You come to Him and say, God, I blew again. But something we want to see God change in our hearts by the power of His Spirit is the motive for us to be repentant. So walk, walk, think through me with, with me on this. Have you ever done something bad and then something bad happened in your life? You do something bad and you get up the next morning and the car won't start, right? I mean, that happens, right? Okay, God, I'm sorry. You start the car. You do something bad and then you go to the doctor's appointment and say, it'll look good. Okay, okay, God, I'm sorry, I blew it. Make sure I'm not sick. So, we, okay, I gotta get, I gotta make sure that I repent and confess before God, uh, otherwise he's gonna bring all kinds of bad things in on me. And see, this is very similar to Absalom. He said, I'm only repenting and seeking uh, the good graces of, graces of the king because I want the king's stuff. What we want to do is have God created us in a heart where we repent because in our disobedience we've lost the best thing. We've sought something lesser and abandoned God who is the greater. Repentance comes from a heart that says, in my sin, it's not just that God is going to punish me. In my sin, I have uh, traded in the lesser thing, the lesser appetite, the lesser desire for God who is the greatest of all desires. Repentance comes from a place of saying, why would I want anything else other than God and His presence? The other thing that's difficult about repenting and reconciling with God is it's really difficult to receive reconciliation from God that's totally free. In all of us, there is a heart not to receive free reconciliation. In all of us, there is a heart to make atonement for our misdeeds. It sounds like good news, and it is good news, but for some of us, it's frustrating. So I'll say it this way, and I don't mean to cause offense, although you might be offended, and if that's true, then I meant to cause offense. So we understand that God loves us as much while we are sinning as He does before and after. Is there a moment in the midst of our sin that God says, you know, man, I don't think I like you that much kind of irritating give you all these blessing and you blow it again is there is there any moment in that but see what we, we we kind of like this notion that god gets a little bit ticked because then we can pay the price a little bit okay i'm gonna mope around for a couple of days and feel real bad about it there's an old movie of bob de niro i call him bob he and i go by first name um it's called the mission anybody ever seen the mission I mean, it's a long time. Well, anyway, he's, a, I think, a Jesuit priest, perhaps. Anyway, he does something really bad. I can't remember. I think he slaughtered a people group. And uh, he, he put into his back a bag full of armor, if I remember. It's been a long time since I've seen it. And he hikes, he climbs up a cliff face with this thing on his back. And why does he do, do it? It's called penance. He's, he's punishing himself that he might own some of his misdeeds. See, and, uh, and we look at that and we say, well, that's kind of silly. I, and I've always said, it's not that silly. We love that kind of stuff. What we don't like so much is reconciliation that's just got free, where God just pays it all. And our job is to simply enjoy the graciousness of God that in the, in the moment of his love and grace, we're filled with desire for him that's greater than our desire for our sin. Do we repent to gain God or merely to gain his things? And if we are going to repent and see God, can we receive it freely? As one author has said, he has marked maturity in his Christian life, not merely as sinning less, 
but bouncing back quickly or to enjoy the love of God after having sinned. And instead of taking 10 days to once again enjoy God's grace after having sinned, it only takes an hour. And then he receives once again the whole grace of God like a cool drink of water. God's promises in the mess of life. Four things. You say, what? There are about 30 points so far. God's promises in the mess of life in a sermon that's intentionally messy. So it's not that organized. So, so I say to my children, suck it up, buttercup. All right, here we go. God's promise in the mess of life. These are true as we have confirmed here today in God's scripture. Grace that is sufficient when people sin against me. Not merely and only when I sin. God's promised experience in the mess of life, that God's grace is sufficient for me, even when people sin against me. That the shame and hurt and pain that I endure because of the acts of other, His grace is enough that I can make it through that. His grace is enough to cover the wounds that I carry. God's promise in the mess of life is that His justice is true and He will actually right every single wrong with no agenda of His own, if not now, in glory. If heaven isn't the righting of every wrong, heaven is not heaven. Justice is going to be done in our life. Every right is going to be done uh, and made into, uh, I should say, every wrong is going to be made right and Christ is going to do that on our behalf with no agenda other than displaying he's awesome. There are things in your life that you say there is no way that that could ever be made right. And Jesus' response will be, watch me. And you will call out glory to him because he does it. God's promise in the mess of life is that we can receive and enjoy his reconciliation that comes not because his hand has been forced, but his reconciliation comes to us from a deep affection and love for us. He loves to save us. He loves to forgive our sin. He's running to meet us as we seek him in repentance and confession. And speaking of that, God's promise in the mess of our life is he is eager to hear and receive our confession and our repentance. We walk into his room. The door's always open. We do this. You ever done this? Um, maybe your little son or daughter does this. Uh, Dad? Yeah. I kind of blew it again. Yeah, I know. <laughs> Boy, you really blew it. I mean, it was kind of like next level blowing it, buddy. I want to confess it. I know, I've just been sitting here waiting. Let's hear it. I know all about it anyway. Let's... So you belt it out to him, expecting some, oh boy, I, I knew you blew it, I had no idea. Wow, you are good at blowing that badly, wow. No, he doesn't do that, what does he do? He turns to his son, who's standing at his right hand, and what does Jesus say? Yeah, I paid for that, so we're square. We're good. Come and enjoy our presence. Come and enjoy our love and our affection. He is eager to hear our repentance and our confession. 
The tragedy and the victory of the cross and Christ's resurrection is the means by which we can have hope in the life that is messy. When we look at Christ crucified, it reveals to our hearts and our minds how bad the situation really is. We discover how bad our sin is and how bad the sin is that will be foisted upon us by others. When we look at the cross, we realize God isn't playing games. He is dealing with the actual situation, which is the situation of life and death. He understands how bad it is for us. He doesn't crucify his son on the cross because things are sort of bad. He crucifies his son on the cross and Jesus goes there voluntarily because it is a horrible mess. And we can say this here, and we don't have it as bad as some, by God's grace. But at the resurrection, we see Christ alive, and it tells us he will make every single thing right. There will not be one wound, there will not be one hurt, there will not be one injury, there will not be one sin foisted upon us that he does not redeem and make whole. Nothing is so bad that he can't heal it at the end. That is where our hope is found. If Jesus is raised, there is hope on that day that all will be made right. If you're here today and others have sinned against you, and if you're alive today, that means others have sinned against you to some degree or another. God's grace can handle it. He loves you. He sees no shame because Christ has paid, the, paid it for you. God will make all things right in the end. Your injustices are not unseen by, by God. They're not, he's not like King David who sort of uh, see no evil, hear no evil. All of the injustices you have experienced are seen by God and all of them will be made whole for your good and for his glory. None of them will be minimized or made light of. They will just simply be made whole and you won't believe what he's up to. And God can receive our reconciliation. He can hear our repentance and restore us to himself because he has no shame. He reconciles freely. He hears our repentance gladly. Unlike King David, unlike Absalom. One final thought as we close. How do we handle the mess of life? I'm going to give you three ideas. If you haven't tried these, don't. Um, three ways we handle the mess of life. Distraction, we distract ourselves from the difficulty of life, work ourselves to death, entertain ourselves to death, keep ourselves busy, whatever you do, don't have a down moment because you might start thinking about how bad life is. How we tend to handle it is distraction. Second way we handle it is medication. We drink too much. We engage in evil and sin as a means of numbing the pain in our hearts. We medicate the pain as a means to try and escape it for the moment, knowing it, I mean, it always just makes it worse, doesn't it? But we do it nonetheless. Or another way we try to fix it is to handle the mess of life is just to live a perfect life. So we try to live it so we, there's no mistakes. Nobody sins against anybody. Everything's fine. Everything's hunky-dory. And then five minutes later, something bad happens. So we say, okay, we can't live a perfect life, so what should we do? Hmm. Let's make everybody think we do. So at least everybody thinks we live a perfect life. We'll take some comfort in the fact that they don't know what's going on. Pro tip, they always find out what's going on. Your kids grow up, they move, and all of a sudden... Your marriage is over. 
So what do we do? Look with me. It's on your verse card, Psalm 55:23. This is tough. At the end of the day, here it is. David, in this psalm, a psalm, what we call an imprecatory psalm, where he prays down God's curses on those who have sinned against him, he ends it with this. And at the end of the day, this is what you have to ask yourself is, do you buy it? Has God moved in your heart that you might be able to say this? But as for me, I trust in you. I don't know what your journey has looked like up until this very moment in time, but whatever that looks like for you, has God moved in you in such a way you say, okay, you know what? I'm going to trust you. God, I can trust you in this. I don't need to distract myself and medicate myself or live a perfect life. Lord, I'm just going to trust you that you can handle the mess of my life. God is, in fact, in Christ, crucified and raised, enough to redeem your actual, real life. And may he be praised for his glory, and may we receive some rest in it.